0: hear you're the voice of your father in that video I hope you can see the face of your father in that video your Heavenly Father I hope you can feel the heart of your father in that video what a powerful video and that's the reality of Christmas Christ came on behalf of the father to make things right with us and you and I we all know look around the world this world's messed up it's broken things just aren't right this is not the world that God created Back in the beginning with Adam and Eve. Today we're going to talk about the gift of reconciliation. And this is a major theological aspect of our salvation. Two weeks ago, I think it was, we talked about the gift of adoption. God adopts us. And we went through all the legal process in our adoption. All those things that are a part of it. Things like redemption and justification and propitiation and regeneration and restoration and sanctification. Those are all big words. And maybe you don't know what each of them means. But they're all a part of what it means to be saved. And that's everything there is what Christ does. He does it all. He does all the work. And uh, today, one of those words is reconciliation. When we are reconciled to God, that's simply the reality of the love that God has for us. In his great love, he has reconciled us to himself. That's why he came. And understand, you have been reconciled to God. I mean, the choice is up to us. The ball is in our court. We can choose his forgiveness, we can choose His peace and His reconciliation, or we can reject it. Just to kind of define reconciliation, just to kind of get a little working definition this morning, here's what reconciliation, and this is what it really means between us and God. To restore to friendship or harmony, to restore friendly relations, to settle or resolve differences. And and that's simply the reality. If you think back to Adam and Eve in the garden, right? God made them perfect. He walked with them in fellowship every day and then Adam and Eve did what? They ate the forbidden fruit, and uh, they disobeyed God, and that fellowship was broken. And there was a big difference between man and God then. We looked at that last week a little bit. Remember, we looked at the story there in Isaiah. He has this great vision. And Isaiah sees the glory of God. And what does I, 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 Isaiah say when he sees the glory of God? He says, woe is me, I am ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, living in a a land of unclean people. And basically, he he just saw the glory of God and and the contrast of his own sinfulness and fleshliness and brokenness contrasted to God's perfection. What a contrast. And he just was like, well, I am ruined. And that's the difference. God is perfect and holy and we are anything but. We, We are scarred by sin and so christ comes to reconcile us to settle those differences between us and god now the christmas narrative today we're going to look at the magi we're going to look and and thank you jenna for doing a great job of reading that earlier this morning so beautifully and tenderly and powerfully and the story of the magi really uh, If you want to understand who the Magi are, you've got to go back about 700 years. And Israel was in captivity to Babylon. And if you remember the story of Daniel, Daniel had some interaction. Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, had some interaction with what were called the magicians back then. And uh, we believe the Magi, commentators believe the Magi came out of those magicians. And they believe that back when Israel was in captivity 700 years earlier, that that's where they learned about the prophecy of a coming Messiah. And the prophecy of the star, and so here are these magi. They're they're like astronomers. They study the stars. Uh, they're also identified as wise men, also as kings, but they really probably weren't kings. But they they, they were these. They astronomers studied the stars. They were wise men, whatever, and well educated, and they knew of this prophecy of a coming Messiah to save the world, and this star that would signify his coming. They learned it 700 years earlier, and so. They are the ones that see the star and they come from Babylon. That's where they travel from the Far East, most likely Babylon. We can't say with certainty, but that's the general consensus. And so it was a trip that would take them probably weeks to maybe several months to get all the way to Jerusalem to worship the baby Jesus. They were not at the manger scene the night that Jesus was born. They came many uh, weeks, months later. And Christ comes. And uh, and they come to worship the newborn Christ. Now, we're going to look at the story today, the Magi's narrative, through really two key words. And we're going to look at this idea of reconciliation through two key words, hostility and hope. Those are the two key words we want to focus on. But let me give you a big idea that will help us understand this idea of reconciliation. Because reconciliation find, brings peace. Now, you're not going to find the word reconciliation or peace directly in the text this morning, but it's clearly there. It's clearly one of the underlying things that's lacking or one of the underlying things that is celebrated uh, really when you look at the narrative today's big idea is simply this being at peace within yourself and in this world requires being at peace with god it's that it's it's just it's simple it's what the scriptures tell us and people can fool themselves or they can not admit that that's true and they can think i don't need god to be at peace yeah you really do if you're really 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 honest when push comes to shove when life gets it's hardest when 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 this world pushes back on you you're going to find out that if you're not at peace with god you're not going to have peace within yourself and you're not going to have peace in this world you're going to struggle to have peace in your relationships peace in your circumstances and so we just need to know the importance of having and living at peace With God every day, we can be at peace. God, in a a positional level, that we we receive His forgiveness and we're saved, and we have peace with God. But then we can live out that peace every single day. Let me give you just a running start here. We're going to unwrap the gift of reconciliation then this morning, and here we are in Matthew chapter two. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king. We want to focus on the days of Herod the king there. Behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. And when Herod and the king heard this, when Herod the King heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him and so here's the first thing that we're going to see the two sides of Christmas the dark side of Christmas and the bright side of Christmas the dark side of Christmas is that Jesus came into a world of hostility he was born into a world of hostility it was a hostile world it's a hostile world today right but Jesus was born into a world that was extremely hostile 2000 years ago it says in the days of Herod the king well what were those days like for one thing Israel was in a season of oppression they had served at various times in the Old Testament they had been taken captive remember they were slaves in Egypt they were taken captive by Babylon we just mentioned that and there's other occasions when they were under oppression by other nations and that's kind of the sense now because really Herod is under the authority of Rome Rome has appointed Herod to be their king because Israel is really under Roman authority and rule what's what's interesting here is that way back in Moses's day God gave Israel some promises that were very promising he told them way back in, in Deuteronomy 28 that they would be the head and not the tail that they would rule over the other nations and not be under oppression of other nations. And, and they would be prosperous and successful. And all of this really hinged on simply their ability to be faithful to God and to worship Him and to not worship the other gods. And they would fall into idolatry. They, they'd fall into idol worship and, and they would drift away from God and God would have them taken captive till they would cry out to God to be rescued. And so that's kind of the context here. Right now, they're in oppression. And and, and you can see how this hostility impacts the people. Verse 3 always really grabs me in this narrative because it says that when the wise men arrived, that Herod and all of Israel was troubled. They were concerned. You can just see the anxiety of their hearts. The reality is the prince of peace comes for the anxious heart this is the the Christ is in Isaiah chapter 9 he's identified well here's the passage Uh, for to us a child is born this is Isaiah's prophecy years earlier in the Old Testament to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So here is Jesus. He is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. Peace. and just again that big idea you have to be at peace with a prince at peace if you're going to have peace within yourself and have peace in this world and note as well in the context here that this prince of peace will one day bring peace to this hostile world the government will be on his shoulders and when he is the king when he sits on the throne this world will know a peace it has never known since the days of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden before they ever sinned there will be an incredible peace peace in this world. This is why you can trust him to sit on the throne of your heart and bring peace to your life. You can't be at peace within yourself and within this world if you're not at peace with God. Now we talk about the season of oppression. Israel's under here, right? And Rome's kind of overseeing them and, and, and it's exacting, you know, taxes from them and kind of abusing them. And, but the reality is this season of oppression they're in, it just mirrors the oppression that you and I and the whole world has been in since Adam and Eve's first sin. We're under oppression. We're, under, we're in captivity to sin and under oppression of Satan. We simply are. That's the reality of our life. Until we are saved, until we are redeemed, until we accept the forgiveness of Christ, we are an oppressed people, oppressed by sin, oppressed by sin. Um, Luke chapter four, verse eighteen. Listen to what it says: "The Spirit of the Lord." This is Jesus. This is why he came. He went into the temple one day and took the scrolls, and he he says this: "The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed." to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Why did Christ come? He came for the oppressed. He came for those that were in captive to sin. He came to set you and I free. He really did. So we see this hostile world and it's, it's, it's understood through the oppression that Israel's under, but it's also understood by the immediate and ongoing rejection of Jesus. He is immediately rejected. Immediately we read that in the text and many of you are familiar with this narrative. But so the Magi, right? The, the Magi arrive and they want to know where Jesus is. And Herod sends them on their way and says, Hey, when you find him, come back and tell me so I can worship him, right? Herod, yeah, Herod wanted to worship him. Uh, yeah, I don't think so. In fact, when the wise men, when the Magi leave Jesus... It says in in verse 12, And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. They were warned that Herod wanted to harm the child, uh, kill the child. They they, they were warned and so they avoided him. And how does Herod respond? Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in, in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. That is a hostile world, my friends. That is a hostile world. And all those baby boys are killed. And it says that Israel cries out in pain. But we see this hostility. Here's Herod trying to uh, snuff out Jesus before he even is is able to reach two years of age. Why does this happen? Why does Herod respond this way? Because we live in a hostile world world. And 30 years later Christ comes and he has his public ministry right. And think about his public ministry. He heals the sick. He he preaches to the crowds. He encourages the brokenhearted. He he just has this incredible ministry. And yet for 3 years he really is chased by certain individuals and he's rejected. And the saddest thing about this all is he came for the oppressed, right? And eventually the very oppressed that he came for are going to do what? They're going to cry out for his crucifixion. They're going to cry out and say, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. That is the reality. That's the hostility of this world that Jesus came into and the, the, the really the sum summary of his rejection. Now, there is a question that emerges at this point for us. We think about Jesus being rejected and hung on a cross eventually. So who put Christ on that cross? Would we say the Roman soldiers put Christ on that cross? Would we say that it was the likes of like Herod, the political individuals that put Christ on that cross? Would we say it was the, the Sadducees and Pharisees, the Jewish religious people that put Christ on that cross? We think about, we think about Jesus coming to a hostile world where he faced certain enemies... Listen to how Paul explains it to us. And this is going to be found in the book of Romans chapter 5. Pretty humbling verses here. Thinking of this question, who put Christ on that cross? Romans 5, for while we, you and I, were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. There's that word reconciliation. But who put Christ on that cross? Yeah, we did. We're the enemies of God here, according to Paul. We're the enemies of God. And here's the reality. There are a lot of people today that don't know Christ as their Savior. They're not really interested in spiritual things. They don't know a lot about God. But if you ask them, they say, well, I'm not an enemy of God. Paul says, Otherwise, Paul says, if you don't know Christ as your Savior, you are opposed to him and his righteousness and you are his enemy. Boy, that's pretty, pretty powerful, pretty humbling stuff there. That's the reality. Because here's the reality. Here's what we do. We stand in opposition to his holiness and if we have not received him, we declare that we don't, A, want him, or B, we don't really need him. See, he tells us, we need him. He tells us we're unholy and we're unrighteous and we need him. And we say, well, sorry, God, but you're just a liar because I really don't need you. I can do this on my own. And so, yeah, I'd say that sounds like somebody who may not think they're an enemy of God, but they are an enemy of God. They are opposed to him. When we ask the question, who nailed Jesus to the cross, we have to ask ourselves another question, uh, um, i got sidetracked there anyway this is the dark side of christmas Then this is the dark side of christmas where we see that jesus came into a hostile world and the point i was going to say there is that we may not look at ourselves as a herod but we're all a little more like herod than we think we are we really are before we know christ we're a little more like herod than we think we are So that's the dark side of Christmas that Jesus came into this hostile world. And remember our big idea, being at peace within yourself and in this world requires being at peace with God. And that's why the next part of the Christmas story here, the bright side of the Christmas story is so beautiful. Is so beautiful. Look at verses nine and 10 here. After listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose Rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and worshiped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. So understand the Magi see this star in the sky back in Babylon when Jesus is born. And they follow that all the way to Jerusalem. They inquire where Christ is and uh, they get some hints that he was going to be born in Bethlehem. But they don't know where he's at. Then the star reappears and points them directly to where Christ is at home with his mom and dad. And they rejoice. And there are two uh, key components here that we're going to look at in this thing. But here, here's the reality. Jesus comes, uh, or was born, with the hope of reconciliation. Jesus was born into a world of hostility, but he was born with the hope of reconciliation. There's this incredible hope. And there are two, uh, there are really two ways that we often identify the wise men or the magi. Two ways when we look at the, uh, the magi and the wise men that we identify them or two points of contact for them one would be the star right the magi star that that star in the sky we think of the magi we think of the star and here's what the star represents that the light of life had come for the dark soul the light of life had come for the dark soul. We saw earlier that the prince of peace came for the troubled heart. Here the light of life has come for the dark soul. Those that are living in darkness. In fact, remember Isaiah, the prophecy? Isaiah talked about the prince of peace that would come and govern the whole world and take the government on his shoulders. Same prophecy by Isaiah, up in verse 2. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep, on deep darkness, on them has light shown. We talk about what this time was like. Here you have to understand from the end of the Old Testament from Malachi the end of the Old Testament to the start of the New Testament there's a 400 year block of time there when Israel doesn't hear from God. When God is just kind of silent. It's, it's identified as a time of silence or a time of darkness. And this is where, this is the, the, the days of Herod. They're under this oppression in Rome. And where is God and all those promises that they gave to them that they would be the head and not the tail. They would be prosperous, that they would rule and not be under oppression. And so in this context, Jesus comes with the hope of reconciliation. And it says here, those who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The light has come into their dark world. The sad reality is that many of the people of that day totally missed out on the significance of Jesus' birth, missed out on the significance of his coming. Here's the beautiful reality when you think about this, that when you come to Christ, when anyone comes to Christ, you know what? The light of life will fill your soul, will flood your life and fill your soul. And that's why you can look at people sometimes, and I've looked at people and said, Boy, you know, I think, I, I don't know that person from, from anywhere. And I can look in them and I can, you know, I bet you that person knows Christ. I bet you that person is saved. And I've had people do that to me. And, those, and they'll just know that I am a believer. Why? Because the light of life can just pour out of our life, can radiate from us when we are God's redeemed. So we know the Magi by the star, but we also know the Magi by what? Their gifts. They bring three gifts. The Magi brings three gifts, and each gift is very significant. Each gift, when you add them all up, tell us a very incredible story. There is, of course, gold. They brought gold and frankincense and myrrh. Gold speaks of the royalty of Jesus. He is a benevolent king set to rule the world one day. This ties back again to the Prince of Peace title we looked at earlier. Jesus will be the first one. He will be the first king to rule on this earth and bring about total peace. There will be peace throughout the land. It will be an amazing, an amazing, an amazing time when he rules. And he deals with all injustice and all oppression like no one ever has. And so there's this gift of gold and we can look forward to this day when that king will rule the earth. We won't be here, of course. But that day will come. And then there is the gift of frankincense. And frankincense speaks to Jesus' deity, that he is actually a God. He is the God who is worthy to be worshipped. There's only one God that deserves to be worshipped. That is Yahweh, the self-existent God that exists in three distinct persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, And the son comes, and they give him frankincense to say that Jesus is that God. He is deity, and he deserves to be worshipped. Here's the beautiful reality, or maybe the shocking reality. Jesus deserves to be worshipped, but you know what? He didn't come to be worshipped. Jesus deserves to be served, but he didn't come to be served. He came to serve. He he deserves to be worshipped. He didn't come to worship, but he or to be worshipped. But he came to worship the Father. That's what he said. I am worshiping the Father. Jesus soon after he begins his public ministry, the devil takes him into the wilderness and tempts him. And there are three temptations there. He's in there 40 days in the wilderness fasting and the devil tempts him. And this is the second temptation. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory for it has been delivered to me and I give it to whom I will and if you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. Jesus didn't come to be worshipped. He came to bring reconciliation to this world. That's the reality. There there is a third gift then, gold and frankincense and myrrh. What does the myrrh represent? Well, the myrrh represents Jesus' humanity. He He is a Savior who can reconcile us to God. So, you see, here's the thing. Alone, each of these are kind of they don't mean as much. You add them all up. You have the, a king, a royalty king, who can rule this world. We, we have a God who is a deity who deserves to be worshipped, and yet we have someone who is a human being like you and I. Jesus is that, that conflicting thing we can't totally wrap our head around, that, that uh, thing where he is both God and man. He's 100% God and 100% man. He is God in the flesh. And for that reason, He can go to the cross and He can die. And when He dies, it's different than if anybody else would have died. Because He is is God. The God we talked about last week that Isaiah said, Woe is me, the God of incredible glory, came down to earth as the Son. And died on the cross to reconcile us back to the Father. And that's a mind-boggling reality that is true. But you add all three of these gifts up and you add up all three of these elements and you see Jesus is really uh, amazing. He really is amazing. And he came to reconcile us to the Father. So that takes us then to what I believe are some very important lessons we need to recognize about this idea of reconciliation. We're going to kind of walk through these real quickly as we wrap up here. Jesus, uh, number one, think about this. Lessons about reconciliation. Jesus didn't come into the world in spite of its hostility. He came into the world because of its hostility. Think about the implications of that. It's not like Jesus said, well, the world's a hostile place, but I'm going to go there anyway and be a great teacher and love the people and point them to God. No, you know what? Jesus came to the world because it was hostile, because they would reject him, because they would nail him to a tree, because that's the only way we could be reconciled back to God. How amazing is that? How incredible is that? He came to be rejected, to make peace between us and God. And and the implications of this are pretty powerful. I was thinking about this. Think about when Jesus one time talked about the new command. Anybody know what the new command is? Remember, What's, what's the old command? The old command is to love your neighbor as yourself and Jesus came along one time and gave us the new command a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you you also are to love one another by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another we read that and we say well I'm just to love like God loved well how did God love well God died for me right he went to the cross and died for me and, and earlier we read that that back in Romans sometimes people will die for a good man but how about this what did Romans tell us Jesus died for who? His enemies. That's who Jesus died for. And so when Jesus gives us this new commandment, one way to understand it, one way to look at it, is kind of like we are shifting from loving your neighbor to loving your enemies. Think about that. Luke 6, but I say to you who hear, love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. But love your enemies, verse 35, and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be sons of the Most High for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful even as your father is merciful. And so there's this kind of this transition. The old command, love your neighbors. The new command is to love your enemies. Wow. <laughs> and, and, and you know, that might not sound so mind-boggling but here's the thing. I think lots of times we think about reconciliation, Right? And we think about reconciling with people and say, well, okay, you know what? I got that relative and we're getting together for Christmas. I should reconcile because we get together every Christmas and it's just not good to be at odds with him. Or, you know, I got that person I work with and I need to get reconcile with them and get along with them because we work together. And, you know, what? it would make a life a lot better if I reconciled with them. Or I got this next door neighbor and we're always bumping into each other and so I should reconcile with them because, you know, yeah, I should. Who did Jesus reconcile with? His enemies. And, and in a sense, there's a sense of reconciling with those who we don't always see as useful. That they don't have any use in my life. There's no n- benefit to me to reconcile with them. They're, you know, wh- you know they're my enemy. They, they were mean to me. They cheated me. They abused me. They hurt me. I have nothing to do with you. I'm never going to think about you again. I'm going to bury my hard feelings deep inside And yet Christ came and says, we need to love those who we don't always see as useful. We need to reconcile even with those who are, that's what Christ did on the cross. He reconciled with his enemies. He reconciled with his enemies enemies and, and why would this be important if you think about it why would it be important that we reconcile with our enemies let me tell you one of the reasons why it's important that we reconcile with anybody we come in contact with in this world because here's the reality the message of God's reconciliation has eternal implications it does it has eternal implications here's what it says in 2nd Corinthians chapter 5 therefore if anyone is in Christ he is a new creation We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. See, that's reconciliation, how it works. Christ took on our sin so we could be made right with God. God didn't just forgive us to reconcile with us, He didn't just forgive us of our sins, He gave us His righteousness. And now, no matter what I do in life, I'm holy and I am righteous. I am not just forgiven but I'm given the righteousness of Christ. That's how I have peace with God. That's how I'm reconciled to God. But did you see the heart of what he's saying here? If you've been reconciled to God, you are a new creature, and you know what? God has given you the me- message of reconciliation. In fact, God is imploring, what, I think it's right in there, we implore you on behalf of Christ. What, what God is is basically doing is speaking to the world through you saying, you need to be reconciled to Christ. You need to know Christ, that you need to be forgiven. You need the righteousness. Because why? Because you'll never be at peace within yourself and within this world if you are not at peace with God. And if you know that, you need to go out and you need to reconcile with anybody, even the people that have no use or value in your life, those enemies that have hurt you, you need to reconcile with them because you know what? You need to point them To Christ. Reconciliation has eternal implications. Eternal, eternal implications. Visual Mangaladi, I, I say that, a Christian leader from India, writes movingly of the impact that Gladys Steins had on his nation. Gladys and her husband Graham and their sons had devoted their life to serving leopards in India's eastern state of Orissa. Vishal writes, Gladys was an ordinary housewife, but she stunned our nation by spontaneously, unpretentiously, humbly, and genuinely forgiving militant Hindus for their atrocities. They had burned alive her husband Graham and her two little sons on January 23, 1999. In 2005, the government of India honored Gladys with one of our highest civilian honors, Padma Bhushan. Why should an individual be given uh, a national honor simply for forgiving murderers? To appreciate the forgiveness, remember that India, India's and Pakistan's births as free nations came with the terrible pain of Hindu, Muslim, and Sikh secretarian riots. About 10 million were made homeless. One half to one million people were killed, including Mahatma Gandhi. 50 years of secular democracy and education could not free us from this destructive chain of violence and revenge. Hindu-Muslim clashes have burned, trained loads of innocent passengers leading to riots that last for weeks. Frequent riots have reduced Indian Muslims to relative poverty and powerlessness. Any successful Muslim businessman is a marked target for the next round of riots. Even sympathetic bankers hesitate to lend to him. Gladys' simple act of forgiveness became a national phenomenon because it broke this common chain of cause and effect. In city after city, Hindu, Muslim, Sikh, Buddhist, Jain, and secular leaders gathered to publicly honor Gladys as a saint to emulate. The government of India was simply the last in line to acknowledge that Gladys Staines is an ordinary woman with an extraordinary spirit possessed of a spirituality that could heal our nation. Reconciliation has eternal implications and can reach out and can break through the hardest of hearts and point people to God. Thank you, Gladys, for your testimony. And let me just tell you that reconciliation is worth the initiative. It is worth the initiative. It's worth the effort. Can I just tell you, when it came to your reconciliation, that God reconciled himself to you And he has already done that. You may have not received it, but he has done it. He has made peace at the cross with you and God. And here's the thing though, it's worth the initiative because here's the point, is that Jesus reconciled you to God when you were oblivious, when you didn't even know you needed it. When you didn't even recognize you needed it and, and he reconciled, he made things right between you and God. You just have to receive it. It's just that gift. And in fact, here, here's the thing. Can we just revisit a question we asked earlier? Just think about how, how Christ pursued this, this issue of reconciliation with us. We asked the question earlier, um, okay, God pursued me for reconciliation when I was oblivious to the need, but I didn't even know I needed it. He came and pursued me all those people there in Jerusalem that were troubled when when Christ came and they heard and they were all troubled and they were all reconciled to God but they were oblivious that Christ had come so here's the question though who really put Christ on the cross we said it earlier right was it the Jews was it the Romans was it you and me listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10 I am the good shepherd the good shepherd Lays down his life for the sheep. Just as the Father knows me and know, and I know the Father and I lay down my life for the sheep. And then verse 17 and 18, listen to this. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Who put Christ on the cross? He put himself on the cross. Why? Because reconciliation is worth it. He took the initiative to forgive you. Yeah, our sins nailed him there. Our sins required that he go there. But you know what? He put himself there. No one forced him to go there. No one could have stopped him from going there. He went there because he loved you and can I just say this to you in the reconciliation process that you have nothing to offer you know most of the time we think of reconciliation right there's two people and we need to reconcile and so it's like well you give a little and I'll give a little and we'll agree to disagree in some parts and we'll all come together and we'll reconcile well when it comes to your reconciliation with God okay um, he's perfect and he's holy and we are anything but perfect and holy and that's just the simple reality first God overlooks nothing and I have nothing to overlook God doesn't look at my life and the point is there there is there is nothing that I have to offer God in the reconciliation process and there's nothing that God has done wrong that I need to overlook it's just that simple reality The big difference between me and God is his holiness and my sin and he does all the work. It's not a 50-50 proposition. It's God doing everything, forgiving all my sin and I simply saying, yes, I need your forgiveness. I need you to forgive me because I have done everything wrong and you have done nothing wrong. Reconciliation really adds another layer to forgiveness. You see, God doesn't simply just forgive me But he gives me as i said his righteousness that's how salvation works that's how you're at peace with god because listen we're never going to be perfect enough in our own effort we've wronged a holy god and so we receive his righteousness and that is how we can have a relationship with god the difference between god and us is beyond comprehension it really is the differences between god and us are so vast it's incredible but you know there's a positive lesson here too when you think about that if you can be reconciled to God, and think about how great those differences are, think about how great the chasm is. God is holy and perfect and we are anything but, and yet we can be reconciled to God. You know what that tells us? That we can be reconciled to anyone. There's no person on this earth we can't be reconciled to that we cannot work things out with. If, if the difference, distance between God and me can be spanned, the distance between any two people can be spanned. I don't care who. It is. I don't care who it is. And here's the reality in the context that my harshest enemies could lie some of my potentially greatest relationships. Some of those people that are my biggest enemies. I could be reconciled and they could turn out to be some of my greatest friends. Apostle Paul, one of the biggest enemies of God and the cross and the gospel. And he was reconciled to God and he's one of God's dearest friends. One of God's dearest dearest friends. Wow. Reconciliation. It is certainly worth it. And then we come to this. Reconciliation allows us to worship God. And those wise men come, the magi come, they bow down, they worship God. Reconciliation enables that. Reconciliation allows us to come before God and to worship Him and to praise Him, especially because of all that He's done for us and all He's forgiven us and given to us. It's an amazing thing. And so there are those that receive his reconciliation and come and worship. There are those who are oblivious to it and they're just troubled by him and they just keep their distance. And there is an an amazing contrast to be witnessed in the Christmas story. It really has to do with this. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? That's the question. Who is sitting on the throne of your heart? With Herod on the throne when he is the one who is ruling, when he is the one the people appear to pay deference to, the people are what? They are troubled. They are troubled by the announcement of this baby king. Instead of looking for him, identifying him, worshiping him, their hearts are troubled. Yet when the magi come to worship the prince of peace, the servant king, the king of all kings, they are at peace. It really is this simple who is on the throne of your heart this Christmas? If anyone but Christ occupies the throne of your heart, if anyone other than the Prince of Peace occupies the throne of your heart, you are not going to be at peace in this world. You just aren't. You can fool yourself, and, but, but you just aren't. I, I'm reminded of the question again by the Magi. What's the question? Who is he born King of the Jews? And I think this is the question that every human heart asks where is he, born King of the Jews? Everybody's looking for Christ. Some don't know they're looking for Christ. Some don't realize that Christ is the answer to their discontentment and their struggles. And Some are oblivious to that. Everybody's asking, where is he who's born King? They're looking for the Prince of Peace to come and rule in their life. Being at peace within yourself and in this world requires being at peace with God. Let's pray. Father God, I just lift up your name today. Thank you for the gift of reconciliation. Thank you for the peace you bring. You came into a hostile world and you bring this incredible hope. The hope of reconciliation that we can be right with God, that we can be at peace with God. And Lord, I just I lift up everybody in this room as we've heard this. And maybe we've heard the Christmas story a million times but never quite like this. Here is how easy it is to be at peace with God. You did all the work. There's nothing we have to do. We just have to receive the gift. We have to admit that we, that there is sin, that there is junk, that there is brokenness in our life, that we have wronged you. Just like Adam and Eve, we have wronged you, disobeyed you, we have gone our own ways. But Christ came to forgive us of our sin and then to give us, his life and his righteousness. And if we, just, if we just can admit our sin and receive your forgiveness, you will come and you will indwell us and you'll give us your righteousness and we can be at peace and at harmony with the God of the universe. The Prince of Peace can rule from our heart. And so I'm I just gonna pray that prayer and you can follow along in your heart if you've never done that. Father God, today I acknowledge my sin I admit that I have wandered from you and today I receive your forgiveness and I receive your reconciliation. I receive your righteousness so that now I can be right with the Father. Come into my heart. Make me a new creation. Rule in my heart. In Jesus' name, amen. If you prayed along,